But more than anything, God loves admiration. You saying God is vain? No, no, not vain. Just wanting to share a good thing. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field and don't notice it. Well, you saying it just want to be loved like it say in the Bible? Yeah, Celie. Everything want to be loved. Us sing and dance and holler. Just trying to be loved. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we check out the juke joint of Amblin' Entertainment to see what sights and sounds await us inside. I am one half of your host, Andrew Godian. And I am the other half, Joshua Glenn. And you join us in this episode where we will be taking a look at Steven Spielberg's 1985 adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Colour Purple. Um, well, first off, actually, how are you, Josh? <laughs> oh, I'm pretty well, thank you for asking, man. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. It's uh, <laughs> ease of lockdown day, April 12th, and instead of running off to a beer garden like a loony, we're doing the sensible thing and recording a podcast. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Spent the day getting in some last-minute prep for this as well, making sure yep. the notes were all up to scratch. <laughs> but yeah, it, looked, this... it looked like a nice day. It, 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 yeah, it certainly did, you know. <laughs> Working away, I didn't see much of it. But <laughs> but uh, it's a good thing we were working away, because this does feel like quite a... quite a la- It's a landmark film in and of mm. itself, and it's quite like a... It's a pivotal one in this discussion of not only Amblin, but Spielberg, and also for a lot of bigger, wider questions as well, I would say. Yeah. But uh, for for the people that aren't too au fait with uh, the Color Purple novel or film, would you give us a sweet, sweet rundown of just what it is it's all about? I certainly can. Right, the Color Purple. Uh, we meet Seely, played by Desrita Jackson as a young girl, and Whoopi Goldberg when older, in rural Georgia in 1909. She's just given birth to her second child by her pa, played by Leonard Jackson, who promptly takes it away and demands that she better not never tell nobody but God. When local widower, Mr, played by Danny Glover, visits the home and asks to marry Seely's sister Nettie, played by Akosua Uzia, Pa refuses, instead offering Seely in her place. Mr accepts and takes Seely to her new home where she is abused by both him and his children. When Pa tries to turn his attentions to Nettie, she runs away and stays with Seely. There, she helps teach Seely to read, and the two promise to exchange letters if they're ever separated. Eventually, Mr. attempts to sexually assault Nettie, and when she fights him off, she is banished from their home. After several years of continuing abuse from Mr. and no word whatsoever from Nettie, Celie has all but disappeared into herself. Mr.'s eldest son, Harpo, played by Willard Pugh, brings home his new wife, Sophia, Sophia rather, played
played by Oprah Winfrey. Ever heard of her? <laughs> Celie notices a striking new type of womanhood, one that refuses to bow to her husband or be cowed by his beatings. When Harper refuses to stop beating Sophia and trying to turn her into someone he can control, Sophia leaves and takes their children with her. Sometime later, Mister arrives home and brings with him an ailing figure in need of rest and recuperation. This turns out to be Suge Avery, played by Margaret Avery, a showgirl and Mister's longtime mistress, and a woman who is entirely self-possessed and iron-willed. While Celie helps nurse Suge back to strength, the two develop a fiercely strong connection. Suge leaves and returns with different men in tow, but throughout it she helps Celie discover her own power and sets her on the way to spiritual liberation. The two also discover that Mister has been hiding away Nettie's letters from all these years, so Celie sets about reacquainting herself with her sister and emotionally, and emotionally freeing herself from the control of Mister. Lovely stuff, man. Lovely stuff. <laughs> That's as best as I could do. There's, there's so much character context and yeah. texture in this. That's kind of the, the, the best through line that I could find. But yeah, there's Definitely, a, it's a like, lot to what, unpack. What, about 40 years it spans in total? Yeah, really. I think in the book it's not entirely... In the film it's signposted. In the book I don't think it's quite as clear. But yeah, it's around about best part of half a century, I think. Yeah. Thereabouts. Yeah. Um, I, was it one you had seen before when we were uh, kind of charting off on this journey and saw it on the horizon was it one that you were like oh yes i remember this from my no from I... younger years or <laughs> i think i remember the trailer i think the trailer because it's warner's right so the trailer will have been yeah. on i think one of my old video cassettes but i can't think what it would have been um but no I, it was one that i was aware of as being a glaring gap in my spielberg knowledge but no hmm. this is the first viewing for me but yeah. you had you seen it before yeah i'd seen it when i was about i 14 i'd say 14 15 you know that kind of that period in any young film buff's life where they are just kind of yeah they they know who their favorites are and we, we go through and we check off as many as we can and yeah. like i think i did the the color purple and schindler's list within like a, a day of each other so it was quite Jeepers. heavy viewing for me <laughs> yeah <a rather laughs> in those couple day. of days so um yeah so i had seen it and particularly at that point where um like I say, I was trying to make myself as basically consumed. So I'm not too sure how much I really uh, kind of retained of it because yeah. um, going into this experience for uh, researching it for this uh, podcast, both myself and Josh have also got ourselves a copy of Alice Walker's novel to kind of really do the legwork, as it mm -hmm. were, for this one. Um, so that in and of itself reading the book ahead of this viewing uh, like kind of has complete did kind of shift my uh viewing of it in quite a significant way because uh we will address the elephant in the room we're, yep, we're yep, two, yep, yep, yep. we're two straight white men yeah and we are aware that um as you can tell from josh's lovely synopsis at the top that this is a account of a black wo woman's uh experience with assault and uh kind of sexual awakening more, mm -hmm. at least more explicitly in the book that is kind of had so we are aware that this is uh not an experience either of us can no. directly relate to but um this is this is the, the course of the rambling and ambling podcast we will we will go through every ambling film and um we felt we, particularly with this one we needed to do a lot of the 
the reading as it were to <laughs> yeah to make sure we weren't uh doing it a disservice in yeah. any way our perspectives are intrinsically limited when it comes to a piece of work like this so we have we've tried to take into account as much extra material as we could to properly yeah discuss this yeah. and like you say do it justice because it's something that that merits diving into and discussing from different perspectives and i know you've you've you have her other book don't you that you've looked through yeah so alice walker uh, the author of the color purple has um among other novels and what and collection of poetries and she's edited magazines over over her long and um, uh very celebrated career she's also a non-fiction writer and she wrote a book called the same river twice honoring the difficult which is about her directly about her experiences with um the film adaptation of the color purple both mm -hmm. it kind of acts it, it it's fascinating as like for anyone who's a fan of this film or of alice walker's writing you're, you're probably already aware of it but if you're if you're not it's such kind of like a rich and particularly if you're doing a podcast episode of, <laughs> on the color purple yeah. it's a very it's a very rich uh <laughs> book of <laughs> of material and that not only does it kind of have articles and what have you detailing the production because it, it acts as both a memoir and kind of a scrapbook it also has these journal entries that she's written at the time and also um more contemporary views that she has on the experience as she's gone on to publish the memoir and it also has her full version of her the screenplay that she wrote uh for the film we'll get more into that oh a bit bit further down the line but yeah the whole screenplay is in the book i didn't appreciate which, so, that yeah <laughs> it, well that's it, fascinating it, it is fascinating it's a I, i'm very glad i got it and i am read it ahead of this and yeah. i felt like being back at uni again i must say <laughs> I've, got, I've got lots of uh little highlighter sticky notes uh sticking out the top of the book <laughs> yeah well i'm so glad i mean this would have been a very short podcast were it not for that because i tried <laughs> to find there's not an awful lot contemporary on online there's a lot of interviews with the key players after the fact talking about their opinions retrospectively but you know there's not an awful lot of um contemporary material so thank mm. god for that book yeah and but our, our, i think both our first portable was the actual book yeah color purple the novel itself. itself and um really and it is like as a piece of work in and of itself about uh struggle and the uh means in which you manage that struggle and find inspiration it's like it's mm -hmm. a very very beautiful text that deals with a lot of big themes in quite a uh in what what on the surface is quite a simple um structure and e even the use of language is yeah quite simple and it it is very very it's a very powerful book and like how it manages to really affect you through like quite subtle nuanced uh details in the characters that are presented through uh both Celie's prayers to god which is how her mm -hmm. telling of the story starts out in the book that then forms into uh letters she receives from her sister Nettie, who's uh in africa and her letters back to her yeah invaluable to read that ahead of oh definitely ahead of watching the film and you even have the thing it's it's the writing the prose is it's quite simple and sort of starkly beautiful but there's also 
there's like a metatextual thing where the, the more Celie is able to to read and write and she can express herself better, the the, the style of prose kind of changes a little bit as, as she's able to yeah. tell the reader more clearly what she's thinking and how she's reacting to the world around her. And um, you really, it really pulls you in in such a uniquely novelistic way. It's um, you, you feel the weight of time in the yeah. in the novel in a very affecting, very affecting way. Yeah. Yeah, it was a beautiful read. Strongly recommended to anyone listening that hasn't yet had the pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that book was published in 1982, and it was Walker's third novel following uh, The Third Life of Grange Copeland in 1970 and Meridian in 1976. And it very, very quickly became like a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was on a number of bestsellers list, and Walker would go on to make history by being the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction uh, the year the year after its publication in 1983. So you kind of feel like with many books that kind of end up on bestsellers list, even if a film never actually eventually happens, someone will more than likely come sniffing around for the rights to them if you're, if you're up in the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Film producer will not be far behind, <laughs> and that was very much the case with uh, uh, Alice Walker and the Color Purple. Um, Walker herself has um, has has said herself that she's not one to really follow the pop culture coming out of Hollywood, so it may have it may have been more of a surprise to her. But when uh, she was approached initially by Peter Gruber and John Peters. Uh, John Peters coming up in weird ways in this podcast across its history. <laughs> John Peters is uh, my friend with the big spider, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> the big spider I from Wild Wild West. Think he'd which... enter the... I'd kind of forgotten he had a producer credit on the colour purple. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's got his robotic spider tendrils everywhere, that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and back in the 70s and 80s, he was a producing partner with Peter Gr- Gruber. And they had a Gruber and Peters company that um, is one one of the many kind of production hands um, involved in the Color Purple. They're kind of the uh, so Warner Brothers is the production the kind of dis- main distributor behind it, and Gruber and Peters were very much the face of Warner Brothers for this kind of, for this progression for the Color Purple. And it was a uh, Gruber who went to visit Walker to. Um, try to convince her to sell the rights to the novel in order to make a film adaptation. And uh, he arrived to that meeting with uh, an ace up his sleeve, for he had already, him and John Peters had already had discussions with a one, the Quincy Jones, about possible involvement in the film. Uh, Quincy Jones at the time was known for what he is known for still to this day as an incredibly successful producer and singer-songwriter. Um, he had, comp- and on the filmic side, he had uh, composed uh, The Wiz by this point, I believe, <laughs> among oh, among many what things. What a picture! And, <laughs> and uh, the TV uh, limited series Roots, and uh, he was coming off of Michael Jackson's, producing Michael Jackson's Thriller in 1982, mm-hmm. and he had just uh, led the charge on the production of the We Are The World charity single that was recorded by the supergroup USA for Africa 
um, and that was to raise money for those in Africa affected by famine. And uh, like I said, Gruber and Peters had already gone to Jones before coming to Walker and asked him if he'd be interested in doing the music for the film adaptation of The Colour Purple. Uh, But Jones himself had another idea. He asked if he could produce the whole project itself, uh, despite the fact that while he had been involved in film productions on a composer capacity, he he was yet to actually produce a film himself. Um, And and Jones very much to kind of like uh, soothe uh, Gruber and Peter's mind said, like, let me go as far as I can go of it. And if you see that I'm messing up, um, you can rein me back in. But he was very adamant that The Colour Purple be his first film that he was a Quincy Jones production on. And it was uh, kind of Jones's involvement that kind of initially captured Walker's interest. A man she believed had a social con- conscience, which was very important to her feeling that she could trust those involved with her story. Um, but still, it was not a straight yes from Walker, and she gathered a group of friends and family, uh, activists, filmmakers, and university professors amongst them to kind of hash out um, the pros and cons of agreeing to allow what was essentially a Hollywood studio to go ahead and make The Colour Purple. Because they were, as I'm sure you can imagine, there were plenty of arguments for not doing it, Mm -hmm. uh, namely the fear of what a predominantly white Hollywood would do to um, her story and her characters. But her friends likewise admired Quincy Jones, and the prevailing thought that started to come out of these discussions, particularly for Walker, was this idea of a universality that a film can offer that a book can't quite, because whilst it had been a worldwide bestseller, she still knew people in her hometown of Eaton, Georgia, who just hadn't read it and were the sort of people that would never read it. And uh, another detail, um, another thing that uh, Alice Walker was kind of experiencing in her life at at this time was her mother was very ill and had suffered a series of strokes that kind of left her in a debilitated state. Her mother herself had not read the book and couldn't really at this point. So again, this kind of idea of how the film could open up Salih's stories, not just to the fans of the book, but also to the millions of people who had perhaps mm-hmm. never even considered picking it up. And for one, it could it would end up in the cinema in her, her hometown. And that was something that um, was quite important to her. It was Jones himself who uh, approached uh, Steven Spielberg to direct the film. And uh, Spielberg's initial answer to Quincy Jones's offer was to say no. For Spielberg himself has said he felt his knowledge of the Deep South was inadequate and that the film should have been directed, should, would, should probably be directed by a woman or a person of colour. Uh, uh, who could relate more to the struggles faced by um, the characters living in the Old South. Yeah. Uh, to, to which Jones's argument was, no, I want you to do it. Besides, did you have to be a, an alien to direct E.T., the extraterrestrial? 
not quite sure it, 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 <laughs> it not not up, one but... to disagree with mr jones but uh, yes yes uh, slightly <laughs> trickier territory but um again um to kind of go back to this idea of of kind of walker's desire to have the film reach as wide audience as possible there's no doubt in my mind that jones is thinking in approaching someone like spielberg is because he was the biggest director in yeah. the world and he would be the man who could get this film out to um so uh, such a wide audience and make it a temple release for 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 that year um and also um once uh jones had approached spielberg and kind of got him on board he and he frank marshall and kathleen kennedy came over from amblin to kind of uh uh take some of that kind of weight off of um the expectation that was on jones this being his first movie producing um he i think it was a very smart move to surround yeah, himself yeah, with yeah. the uh the 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 biggest names in in hollywood at that time to kind yeah. of um at least to make sure that when he wanted something to push he at least had the the weight to back him up on the ambulance side yeah whenever facing up kind of to any studio notes that warner brothers were likely to present when jones introduced walker to spielberg uh he brought him over in a limousine that didn't quite fit in walker's driveway which, feel- <laughs> <laughs> which is a detail i quite quite enjoyed <laughs> very evocative image isn't it <laughs> yeah and she she had been told by jones that spielberg was the man he wanted to make it and she she was a little skeptical uh she had seen et and was a fan of the nature loving little alien what with being a nature lover herself mm-hmm. um but uh she she was charmed by spielberg's very adamant and uh enthusiasm very clear enthusiasm for her characters um and this is a quote i got from uh Ms. article from uh december 85 um, yeah so this would have been like uh when they were pushing the initial release uh, it, it's a very sweet quote that i think kind of speaks a lot to alice walker's spirit as it, yeah as it were she said uh, in ancient times people believe that you fought with your hearts and in more modern times people say you, you think with your brain only a few of us still actually think with our hearts and after talking to Stephen. I had a lot of confidence that he was one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you can feel that in her writing as well. There's a lot. Oh, of, definitely. Yeah. A lot of that kind of very raw emotion coming out of uh, a lot of the characters. So yeah, to have someone that she felt had that similar sense of heart and empathy, I think would have been yeah. crucial. It's real beating heart storytelling. And I, I suppose in that regard, there is an overlap in their sensibilities. Walker made a very, very couple of very smart moves in her contract negotiations. Uh, one, she, she, her, from advice from her friends, she was making sure she, the figure that she was being offered was, you know, real Hollywood money figure, and it wasn't something where they were trying to undermine her, her naivety about the business. They made sure that that offer was like a real money offer, and but I think the most important. Um, stipulation that she made in her contract was that um at least half of the population of the film off screen should be women people of color 
or people from uh, developing nations. And there's a lot of kind of testimonies from people in a, on the production in a, a few of the articles expressed in the same river twice where you have like the a lot of like stuntmen or production assistants kind of talking about how this feels like one of the first times that they've been able to be on a set and look around and see um other people of color on them yeah. around them and not have such a um white dominated set as i'm sure was and arguably still is the yeah common practice for a lot of big scale productions of this nature and the third um one of the third kind of caveats to her contract was which was something that her herself was not overly keen on was the fact that um Spielberg and Jones wanted to wanted her to have a pass at the screenplay um and it, it as i say she did write a version she kind of took herself away to um a solitary spot in a in the cabin in the woods as i think many of us want to <laughs> as uh, <laughs> the ideal <laughs> um and she committed time to producing her version of the screenplay which you can read in that in that book but she was she was very concerned about um the color purple taking more time away from her and her family and mm-hmm. her teenage daughter in particular uh, and her mother who was very ill particularly after the last um two years from having the book being published and everything around around it becoming a bestseller and winning Pul- the pulitzer but i mean the color purple is taking a lot of her time <laughs> so i get i gonna truly understand a desire to feel like you're robbing your family of that kind of precious yeah, oh yeah. time yeah. with you from reading the script itself it is quite a different beast to what would end up being the final screenplay there's a lot that's from the book that stays in the in her version of the screenplay that isn't necessarily in the final one uh this is kind of a few quotes from her kind of summing up the general yeah content of her her take uh it was a quieter film than the one filmed there was not so much music in mind it was clear the women loved each other it was clear that shug is like me bisexual that salee is lesbian what I've kept that the film entirely avoided is also Shrug's completely unapologetic self-acceptance as an outlaw, renegade, rebel, and pagan. And that's a, a I will kind of build on that point a bit more up when we go into our more general yes. discussion yeah, of the absolutely. film. Because there's a lot in her. I I think as a screenplay, as I read it in here, yes, it's literally a draft, so it was never going to be a refined thing, a refined. Uh, screenplay in that form um, it it does feel like it slightly hurtles a bit too much through the history of what's occurring in these characters but there's a lot of touches in it that I, I think is a great shame weren't carried over um, the kind of aforementioned um, uh, relationships between the characters being more ex- explicit and also yeah. there's that she has this because uh, I uh, and I'll kind of go into it when I talk about who did eventually write the screenplay. There is this, I feel this tension in adapting The Color Purple, not just for its content, but also for the structure of it. Because as we mentioned, the structure of the book very much is simply made up of letters. 
or letters to God, letters to Netty, or letters from Netty to Salih. And that is clearly not a very clear way of structuring a screenplay of scenes. Of, so you could think, we'll just do it all in voiceover, but wh- whether that will work and to kind of sustain a narrative as such. Um, and one of the things that I think Walker's screenplay does quite nicely is kind of has a more conflicted element with God where Salih doesn't kind of tries to go to pray to God but can't quite do it and Mm -hmm. so there's this uh, running reoccurrence of this uh, blanket that she's making and the patchwork that she's making at the time uh, that she designs each patch to kind of reflect a moment that's happened to her in the in the story be it the kind of um, assault she receives from her father or mister or her kind of kindling of a relationship with Shug. And that, that, that was just a very like sweet detail. Yeah. Feels very cinematic. And I was very surprised that it wasn't something that was carried over. Yeah. That and is she... surprising. It, it does lend obvious visual elements to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to give you a sense of the kind of like, still that kind of same and. That, that sort of anxiety that I feel like anyone who's asked to adapt their own book must feel when kind of approaching that task. You you would kind of end up, well, I guess for the sake of sanity, you kind of have to end up viewing them as two separate things and not the same thing. Otherwise, you'll get crushed by every little thing that isn't <laughs> kind of coming in, coming through. So yeah. she, with, with that in mind, she came up with a new title for a screenplay called Watch For Me In The Sunset. Um, to kind of like have it as a almost as a way to categorize it both for herself and for the sake of um, putting that together I think yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) that makes sense so when she kind of handed her draft in and said I don't really want to have another go at another pass at this uh, Jones and Spielberg went on the hunt for a new writer with many many writers that they approached having a similar opinion of finding it too hard a novel to adapt into a film. The eventual writer that they ended up going with was Minal Meyers, Meyers, who is a a Dutchman, um, a fact um, that also made him apprehensive about the task at hand, being a a white Dutchman who hadn't even grown up in the the United States. So he, he, but he, Felt him, he himself had quite a clear idea of how to present that narrative um, in a cinematic, uh, in a way that would work cinematically. Um, Walker did also meet with Melissa Matheson during this kind of courting of writers period. Uh, Melissa Matheson, yeah. of course, um, you'll remember from our ET days, as she <laughs> she wrote the script for ET, but uh, the two didn't click. But when she met. Um, Mayers, they, they, she felt a kind of kinship with him, as she said, even though he's not American, he comes from a Holland that has its own folk speech, and he had a real feel for what folk speech is and how it's not substandard, just different. And uh, this, this was a kind of a sentiment that um, echoed a lot through. The, I keep forgetting the name of this book. <laughs> the, the, the same river twice. Um, in that. Um, she has an innate trust with someone if she feels on a kind of she brings up this 
phrasing a lot where I didn't have the feeling that Menno was a stranger and she kind of talks in the same way about Quincy and yeah uh, Quincy Jones and Steven Spielberg and that they don't feel like strangers to her and I, I can't imagine how that would help with your kind of anxieties about other people oh yeah coming yeah. and taking taking your baby as it were so uh mayors developed drafts meeting with Spielberg on the set of the Goonies of all places uh, <laughs> that's an odd image yeah <laughs> to go over what he had written for uh that day and kind of reviewed it with Spielberg and Spielberg uh, threw his suggestions in and what have you. And the film went into production in the summer of 1985. And keep in mind that this film comes out in December 1985. So that is one hell of a turnaround. (laughs) So yes, production kicked off summer of 85 in Monroe, North Carolina. Both Mayes and Walker were constant presence on the set, all the time kind of working together to refine scenes as they went. And Walker in particular got very close with uh, the actors who had been given the responsibility of bringing her characters to life. And she proved particularly helpful with addressing certain um, plants or uh, vegetables that Slee would be growing in a garden, that kind of attention to detail and a lot of the background of certain scenes. And uh, in order to kind of remain authentic to the black folk English speech patterns represented in in the book and what would fit the characters for the time and place in which uh, the film is depicting, um, she kind of set up a speech workshop as it were, that kind of came to be effectively known as Madam Walker's Speech Clinic and Tarot Reading Parlour, as she would also give <laughs> anybody that came through a tarot reading. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that's quite a good point to then kind of go into the actual cast itself that's built up. The main kind of point of interest for, I'm sure, a lot of fans for these respective actresses is that this is the cinematic debut of both Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey. Goldberg at the time was um, quite well established as a a Bay Area comic and was becoming a bigger star on the rise through her material. She actually got put, kind of got herself in the conversation for a film version of The Colour Purple before there was even a idea of The Colour Purple being adapted to a film because she had read the book when it was first published and had had loved it and had loved the character of Celine. So Whoopi Goldberg actually wrote to Alice Walker to say how much she loved the book and to say, can you please think of me if a film <laughs> adaptation of this novel ever occurs? Uh, to which Alice Walker at the time did reply and said, I'm familiar with your work. I am a fan and absolutely I will think of you if this ever happens. And True to her word. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I was not aware of that. I did not know there was yeah. a history between them. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> it, it's a hell of a, like, debut performance to kind of throw yourself into. Um, oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. And, yeah. and to, to come... Because before that, she had a one-woman show that drew the attention mm. of Mike Nichols. And I have you ever yes, seen that? Yes, that's right. No, no, I haven't. I haven't seen that either, no, but from what I gather, it's kind of a, a, a comedy autobiography 
styled thing, and it's such a a different ball game to go from that to a role like uh, like Seely in mm. this movie. It's a hell of a feat she's pulled off, and I, one I that well, Sorry, uh, Roger, it's one that Roger Ebert, I believe, called one of the best screen debuts of all time. And she is phenomenal on it, and yeah, and I'll talk more about how much I love love her in this as we go deeper. But um, that. I remember this quote uh, from her that saying she's kind of had a silver spoon in her mouth for her career because she got her stage di- debut with Mike Nichols and her film debut with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not killing it? <laughs> oh, can't get much fairer than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Oprah Winfrey makes her debut playing Sophia, who's Celine's daughter-in-law of the story, and the kind of like another like her her plot line has a lot of uh tragedy and particularly that the kind of drama focused around her is more about the kind of uh wider culture of racism and white suppression on african americans at this time uh more more directly than salee's story ever kind of touches upon itself uh so it's a big it's a big role and it, like because it's a, a uh, Sophia is like a, very much uh, a big component of the heart of the story itself, and even even her kind of casting has a similar sort of lucky happenstance feel to it as Whoopi Goldberg's does. Because as I understand it from what I've read around it, um, whilst they were kind of trying to c- come up with names for um, who could play Sophia, Quincy Jones was visiting Chicago at the time and spotted Oprah on her talk show that she had on a, the Chicago cable network and um, had that kind of moment of just flicking on the hotel TV and going, that's her! <laughs> <laughs> that's her, Sophia! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As you can imagine. <laughs> and again, it's what uh, I do think it's a very as as Whoopi Goldberg's debut is also so impressive i do think this is also an equally as impressive debut so it's it's mad to me that these are two debuts <laughs> <laughs> the other kind of key role in the cast was that of shug avery um the object of both misters and Celie's affections and that, that this role went through a number of possibilities um with uh initially the main person that both uh quincy jones I think Spielberg and Whoopi Goldberg herself were very keen on um, Tina Turner taking the role and they did offer it to her, but um, she turned it down, finding the material a bit too close to home for comfort, which I can understand entirely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And um, while other names were thrown around, including Diana Ross at one point, uh, Margaret Avery was cast following a successful screen test that where I think it just was very clear there was a real passion for the role. There's even a story that I read about her going out to kind of a very rundown costume shop to find the kind of most shug outfit that she could find and found mm. this kind of, kind of long, lacy red number and kind of wore that the day before a screen test to like kind of live in shug for <laughs> for a time. So there, there was clearly a, the passion there to yeah. win the role. But what is like, such a key role in the book so it it's such a that that i feel is the the role that you kind of need to cast most yeah. 
clinically it's, almost if, yeah it can it hinges a lot a lot of the relationships hinge on show i think you could say it's the quote-unquote glam role of the film yeah yeah <laughs> and it was almost yeah, you can't sorry go on andy i just say you can't you can very much imagine tina turner in a role but i do think margaret Avery yeah. is again also very good oh yeah and from what i gather it was a bit of a hail mary for her too because she was she was that close i'm i'm holding my fingers very close together you can't see obviously she was that close to packing it in and i think she was going to get a typist job or something like that she was wow. she was sort of on the way out yeah but this was a real hail mary Boom. for her yeah and again what a performance yeah and uh i think the kind of other key role that to be cast was that of mr uh Zalee's, uh abusive husband um and danny glover was cast in a role kind of which initially um i think when you kind of when you read the description of mr in uh walker's screenplay he's kind of described as like kind of short in stature and a bit not this tall domineering figure that danny glover naturally is he's a he's very very large man in a very kind of masculine sense i would say in a way that perhaps wasn't in the way Walker quite envisioned. I mean, in, in, in her own words, the point of the book was that size doesn't matter when it comes to terrorizing and dominating women. And it's a strange mm. um, in, uh, inversion of that to cast someone as, like you say, physically imposing as Danny Glover. Yeah. Uh, uh, she did seem to have, again, kind of fall in love with a lot of the actors on set and and particularly loved Glover's work. There's a really lovely letter in this book that she wrote to him about what his performance did for her and kind of making her readdress her feelings for her grandfather, which, it, again, if you do manage to get a hold of this book, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very moving letter. She's a beautiful writer, even in her correspondence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's this kind of push and pull with the Mr. Character. I, again, this is something we can go into a bit more detail in our actual discussion of the film itself, um, that there is a bit more attention given to Mr. than perhaps there is in the novel. And the way that kind of Walker said that she saw this was, um, Stephen is more interested in showing the transformation of Mr. to Albert, as well as well as the least changes. And I understand that he would ne- he would necessarily bring a lot of himself in how he manipulates the scene. And while we may miss our favourite parts, uh, what is there will be its own gift. And I hope people will be able to accept that in the spirit that it is given. And that's a quote she gave, particularly in the relationship that she was feeling towards uh, Spielberg's and I guess Mayer's uh, script's approach to the Mr. character. Because it it is quite different. Yeah. Particularly in the last stretch. And it, the, the the extra time, again, we'll get into this in a second, but the extra time you spend with Mr. in that final stretch is time that should be spent, that is spent elsewhere in the book, developing a different relationship and showing a different transformation. And it's a very, very conspicuous choice that, um, mm-hmm. you know, we can we can delve into shortly. Yeah. But again, Danny Glover is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> he is excellent. An embarrassment... <laughs> An embarrassment of riches uh, in front of the camera on this, uh, regardless of regardless of anything else. There's there's always that. Hmm. Um. So I would say the film the film was set for a December '85 release. So uh, to very much fit it into the conversation of the 
upcoming Academy Academy Awards for the films of eighty five. And the the December premiere of the Color Purple itself was picketed in Los Angeles by an activist group called the Coalition Against Black Ex- Exploitation. And uh, this is a kind of history that has followed both the novel and the film, as it, they were a group that were protesting the uh, what they believed to be the savage and brutal depiction of black men in the film. Uh, as I say, this has been a topic amongst fans of the fans and critics of the book since it was published and it was not something that was uh absent from the film itself at all um with uh uh this group and others similar to them uh did kind of try to have well it tried to get the people involved in the production to let them kind of have approval of screenplays and what have you and it was that refusal to let them have a look and to give notes and a seal of approval that led to a lot of the kind of picketing that did occur around key events for the film's release. And when when the film itself was released, um, it had a similarly quite mixed reaction. Um, box office wise, it performed very well. It ended up earning 142 million worldwide off a budget of 15 million, as well as receiving. 11 Academy Award nominations, although Spielberg himself was snubbed for Best Director, um, and it, in fact, would not go on to win any of those awards on the night. Um, the critics themselves um, were were kind of as split as, I think, even reaction to the novel was upon its publication. Uh, as I think you kind of, you brought up his name earlier, um, Roger Ebert hailed it as uh, one of the films of the year. Pauline Kale thought it felt quite phony and, off- and offered phony depictions of the book's characters. Um, black female critics of the time were not so critical of the film. Although Barbara Smith attacked the film for its class distortions, she felt that the sexual politics and sexual violence in the black community represented in the film were, matter, were, were matters that needed to be confronted and changed. Uh, and Jill Nelson at the time emphasised that those who did not like the the message, the messenger, the film, uh, what it had to say about black men uh, should look ar- at the facts of the message itself, which is a kind of reaction to a lot of the criticism that Walker herself had at the time, um, particularly in that a lot of, a lot of the critics would seemingly ignore the kind of the the pain and experiences of the women and children both in the story and kind of who they were reflecting out in a out in the real world so it's a very kind of tumultuous release i would say for for this this film it very much echoing echoing the kind of history that the book has had uh since its publication when uh, I I know you I think you found similar quotes to this of a kind of uh, Spielberg's reaction to both the release of the film itself. So I thought maybe we should kind of go into that before then. I think diving into Alice Walker's reaction yeah. itself because her her reaction yeah, itself yeah. is fascinating. Hers is yeah a lot of back and forth, a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of to and fro in. 
Um, so Spielberg, for his part, in a 2011 interview with Entertainment Weekly, uh, he was asked briefly by the interviewer about uh, The Colour Purple and the controversy that his appointment as director was met with. And I'll read the whole thing out because there's a lot of juicy tidbits in there. But what he replied mm. to the question was, uh, most of the criticism came from directors that felt we had overlooked them and that it should have been a black director telling a black story. That was the main criticism. The other criticism was that I'd softened the book, and I've always copped to that. I made the movie I wanted to make from Alice Walker's book. Alice was on the set a lot of the time and could have always stepped forward to say, you know, this is too Disney. This is not the way I envisioned this scene going down. She was very supportive during filming, uh, and so I felt that we were going down. Uh, we were doing a good job adapting her novel. There were certain things in the lesbian relationship between Sugar Avery and Celie that were finely detailed in Alice's book that I didn't feel could get a PG-13 rating, and I was shy about it. In that sense, perhaps I was the wrong director to acquit some of the more sexually honest encounters between Sugar and Celie, because I did soften those. I basically took something that was extremely erotic and very intentional, and I reduced it to a simple kiss. I got a lot of criticism for that. So there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot in there. A lot and, in there. <laughs> again, so we, we keep offering trailers for our later main discussion. We'll, we'll, we'll sort of talk about Spielberg's reaction a bit and then Alice Walker's response as well before we get into our main, main discussion. But that, so much of that covers bases that I think will either make or break this film for you, right? I, I, yeah. He, is, I think he, he, he isn't denying that there were elements fundamental to the novel that he himself was fundamentally ill-equipped to deal with and on the one hand that level of, of honesty and self-reflection i think is admirable i mean if you are spielberg there's nothing to lose in being that upfront about your you know um follies in the past but at the same time th that speaks very much to an ill fit i think between filmmaking mm. and and my material because some of the changes that he made and, and the, the, the softening that he claims to have done um, I don't know. I, I it 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 strays away from so much of I think what makes this book so powerful. Um, mm. which is why I imagine Alice Walker was like, and she describes this a lot. She was having a lot of anxiety dreams around the kind of build up to seeing it for the first time. And yeah, you just would, yeah. wouldn't you? You just would. <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine what it must be like to pour so much of yourself into a book that is as, like you say, raw as the color purple is, and then, first of all, have to, having attempted to adapt it yourself, having to hand the reins to someone that, even if you trust them, you're still handing the reins to them and allowing them to put their spin on it, and then hmm. to watch the dailies. Um, and and think, or maybe it is going a bit too Oklahoma, as she called it, or a bit yes. too. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, yeah, it it must be a hard thing to go through, and uh, I bet it was quite traumatic in its yeah. own way for her. So it leads to like this. I think this relationship, that, particularly between kind of an author seeing their film being adapted, and just generally the act of adaptation itself is fascinating in kind of any context, but particularly in this, when you have something like um, the same river twice, where she includes journal entries um, about her reactions to the film. It's, it's very interesting to see her, how her reactions kind of modulate dependent on kind of certain variables of when she viewed the film. 
there's one journal entry that's dated around uh, early December 85. So it's just before it's about to come out. It's the first time she's seeing it. And uh, she's seeing it um, in a in a sc- private screening room for uh, with only a few other people in the room. And it's around yeah. this kind of first week where she's about to be expected to give interviews for uh, for the film, having having seen it. And um, the only the only thought that she could the only basic thought that she could could kind of verbalize to herself after a first viewing was. It's terrible. It's <laughs> oh, <laughs> what, what she's. It's what she's put. Yeah. Um. And she's just saying it looks slick, sanitized, and apolitical to me. Some of the words coming yeah. out of the characters' mouths sound ludicrous. She feared it yeah. looked like a cartoon. And yeah. in short, she says, "In first viewing, I only noticed the flaws, and that was kind of it." <laughs> But Look, man, what then, I would say is trust your instinct. Yeah. <laughs> but then, then she had, uh, then she follows that entry up with a journal entry from Jan- like January that ends up recounting kind of her experience going into uh, seeing the color purple in a at the premiere at the New York premiere where, um, like everyone or so many famous faces are there all her friends come with her to watch it and the and the room is packed and in that in that moment um she felt very differently and stated that she loved it and a part of that was she said she was finally able to see it and let go of the scenes that were not there and while she does still hold on to the fact that it is much more conventional she says she still felt a lot of the souls of the people in it and then she kind of goes into describing the kind of relationship that one would have with a novel and a and a film and um, says by, by saying uh, watching a film is just the opposite of reading a book seeing a movie with lots of people helps tremendously <laughs> yeah reading yeah. a book is such a solitary pleasure and you don't want people guffawing in your ear but watching a movie is always better with lots of people. Um, and I, I just found that kind of the juxtaposition of those kind of viewing experiences, like just fascinating. Cause I, yeah, I, yeah, you can probably think of countless films that you yourself um, have watched um, where your experience going either sat at home, watching it alone or seeing it alone at the cinema and then kind of, changing up that experience to watch it with other people does add mm-hmm. a extra zeal to most things. Yeah. And I think, you know, the past year has made us acute. You and I being keen cinema goers ourselves, the past year has made us acutely aware of just how cherished that experience is. And hopefully it's made other people that aren't us uh, acutely aware of that too, which will lead to, you know, an uptake in cinema attendance once they're allowed yeah. to safely be opened again. Hey, Godzilla vs. Um, Kong's doing well, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so you've got those two uh, differing responses w- within quite close succession, and then the one I saw was at the, the she wrote a letter at the beginning of her 2017 mm. paperback of The Colour Purple, um, and she opens a letter saying, what stood out for me watching the film was how different it was from the book. She's talking about um, a retrospective screening she went to recently 
Uh, so she opens with that line and she talks about the, the manifold things the book changes or the issues she has with the film uh, and you know and so on and so forth. But then as she reflects more on her recent viewing, she says that she was amazed that there was still, all these years later, sniffles and guffaws going on all around me. And in fact, I too shed tears and laughed. So I feel like she's kind of reconciled those two parts. Um, yeah. Kind of skews more right. towards the latter than the former, but she's still, she's found a way to be at peace with, you know, with, with what definitely is there. And, and the overriding sense I get is, it kind of come, comes back to an earlier quote of what I, of what I kind of brought up earlier about how she kind of hopes that um, people can kind of take the, take the two for what they are and what they both kind of individually offer rather than consider um, what it is that namely the film is lacking that from the book itself. And the, the general kind of sensation and emotion that I got from reading the memoir is that she's whilst it was a highly anxiety fueled experience that um much of what she got out of that experience was a deeper sense of how her story has connected with millions of people and how um people were willing to recognize the um, responsibility that they had with this story and how much clear love and heart there was on set every day that is a lot of that that is kind of stressed in both kind of newspaper clippings from the time and her kind of expression of the way she kind of feels towards Spielberg and Quincy Jones as she kind of like a quote from near the end as she's kind of like surmising a lot of the kind of relationships that she's forged through this experience that she like Clyde wouldn't have had she says that that I survived the stress of trusting two men I'd never met with work filled with my own and my and my ancestors' spirits is to me the miracle, and to come away from that with um, meeting two men that she came to feel weren't strangers and that the universe loves something in the spirits of these men, and for that reason has given each of them enormous power to shift reality in the world i feel like there's quite a grandiose emotion in those words that kind of recognizes what what those two men could do for her story and and open it out for so so many more people to discover which i i think for me what i took from reading this is that is what she kind of reflects as being the kind of strongest element of the color purple there's this intention to bring it to so many more people and you can't argue that it has it has done that and continues to do that definitely yeah i mean further to that point in a discussion with the la times um busia avery and winfrey uh, spoke um to an interviewer in 86 i think it was so just after the film came out and busia who plays netty in the film she she said uh, at the start she she thought, come on, Stephen, how cleaned up is this going to be? Uh, she argued with him at one point about the opening. The book obviously opens with 14-year-old Celie being sexually abused by the man she thinks is her father, and the movie opens on a field of flowers. Uh, Stephen apparently said to her, look, you can't lose the audience. If you started the way the book starts, people would walk out. And she ultimately landed on the side, this is Busia, this. 
landed on the side of him being right. This movie needed to be made and seen. If it had been made by a black director, she says, uh, me and maybe Margaret and Oprah would have seen it in an art theatre somewhere and nobody else would have heard of it. Um, I can't really speak to that as a white guy in 2021. The landscape back then was radically different. But, you know, like you say, there is something true about this man being chosen, these people being behind the camera and making these decisions makes it more palatable to a mass audience, for better and for worse. But yeah. it did open it up. And, um, you know, I, I, do you want to get, do you want to, should we dive into our... <laughs> I think this is a good point. I think this discussion. is a good point to do it. <laughs> um, so, so, Andy, I want to really, uh, you had seen the film before and then you had read the novel and you'd done all this extra reading behind it. How much did your experience of watching the film change with all this fresh material in mind? So it knocked a star off on my letterbox, so I'll tell you that much. But was... <laughs> <laughs> um, so I originally had, like, of because, like, again, this uh, it was four stars on my letterbox and me just kind of looking at the film's page and going, oh, I've seen this and I remember liking it. Four stars. Not, uh, it wasn't that much more considered than that, I must say, because it, before watching it again for this, it'd been about 13 to 14 years since I'd last seen it. Um, but um, coming away from it this time, um, I felt compelled for, to take that star off because as, and this is like I, I, with any film I watch where I've read the book, I, there is always this desire to at least want to just be like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to compare it to the book too much. Um but I think because I had it so much on the brain, I did find it a little harder to reconcile the kind of differences within it initially, particularly in the first half an hour or so. I was I was kind of struggling with the fact that I I was like, OK, this isn't this hasn't done the book at all. And my initial kind of emotion to that was a sense of um, kind of. A, a, a disappointment that this was um, kind of the film that was un- unfurling from having, like I say, like reading so, reading the book so close to going in and watching it. But um, I, I and I kind of felt myself as I was watching it have that concern for fall more and more away, particularly after having kind of ha- that kind of echoing. Um, thought in my head from Alice Walker being to try and see the gift that the film itself is offering um and I I still I still I still like it I still I still think it's I still think it's good and um and I think part of that is largely down to um the performances within it keep kind of keep that heart and um really are like clearly so dedicated to their characters and to their stories um in a way that i think does manage to kind of paper up a lot of the kind of gaping um cracks in in the in the fabric of it that kind of comes from and it's hard to say it doesn't come from it because it it really does come from it i think comes from having steven spielberg the man who directing it if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it it does. It does. I mean, I I I think 
it, it's a conflicting thing because on the, on the one hand, it, it, it is the 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 rather the I suppose it's the cynical side of things is that you do have to make concessions in order to appeal to a wider audience. And yeah, I I, I checked the BBFC website. Bef- yeah, oh no, no doubt. I checked the BBFC because we obviously were English boys. I checked the, the BBFC website to to see what classification it was because Spielberg is not a filmmaker that I can think of as. I think maybe Schindler's List aside, I don't think he's ever made a film that is 15 here or R in America. Has I, I thought this M- Munich would have been Saving Private Ryan. Oh, would Munich, of course, oh, and Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, okay. So that was sort of more in his late um, late 20th century, early 21st century. Yeah. So I I, I thought yeah. So I I checked the BBFC site and saw that it was rated 15 in the UK, which would be around about R in America. And thought okay, so he has gone he has gone full throttle with this. Um, then I suppose it, there was that there was a weird thing where a lot of PG 13s in America were given 15 over here in the mid 80s. Like the, uh, Gremlins was PG 13 in the states, and was a, yeah, that happened a uh, lot. A 15 yeah. over here, that kind of thing. So it, it probably is. It was too intense to be a PG here, um, but you know, not not quite intense enough to be a 15. Anyway, this, this is a long walk to say that I was I was very disappointed by the extent to which the film had been sanded down and the it's a very double-sided coin because on the one hand, yeah, more people are going to see it and, and, and at a time when stories like these were not often seen, especially yeah. on this kind of scale, you, you do want to make sure that it's going to reach as wide an audience as possible. But on the more cynical side of things, you do think you, you take a book that is this raw and this unvarnished and unadorned and you sand it down to the point that it can be seen you know, by a Disney viewing audience and that there's something of a betrayal, I think, of what the book is in that, which kind of leads to a larger question of what an adaptation of a book should do. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not the kind of person who thinks that an adaptation should be beat for beat. I think that you look at the early Harry Potter films, and I, I, I'm a defender of those films, but they are pretty much chapter for chapter adaptations. And as such, the pacing is sluggish and off and you know, it, it kind of doesn't do a great job of adapting that for a new medium. What I think a film adaptation should do is capture the essence and, and the sort of thematic through line and the emotions of the book and translate that to the to a new medium. And I think while the film does work as a film, it's very handsomely made. I think the design of it is beautiful mm. and the performances are exceptional across the board. I do think that this it kind of guts a lot of the essence of the book. And I I do think that as adaptation of the colour purple, I would I think it's fundamentally a failure. Um, okay. Yeah. Just, just, just in terms of what it takes out. I mean, I, I know it still it has the broad contours of of the story, um, but it, it's just so much of the emotions in the novel are all based around ambivalence. There's, there's nothing quite so simple as as catharsis or as a as a happy ending. The book kind of reaches a point where. Um, it's closest to a happy ending that you might closer to a happy ending than you might expect, but it's still laced with palpable decades of pain and suffering that's not going to go away easily. And I think so often the film just kind of irons out those creases, irons out the ambivalence, and just presents these things as quite simple emotional crescendos. And I suppose the the, the big one, the big thing that this film takes out that we kind of alluded to by saying that the back half takes out a certain relationship is the the Shug, Avery and Seeley relationship. In in the film, 
Shug is someone who helps encourage Celie to become someone who is more self-actualized and more self-confident and more content in her own skin to to grab that agency and, and take what she wants and make her life more of her own. Whereas in the book, it's a bit more complicated than that because she encourages a sexual awakening in Celie and she helps her discover what she calls her button. And there's a very, very frank discussion of female sexuality and female sexual pleasure. And she kind mm-hmm. of says to... Um, there's one point when they're talking about sex and she kind of implies to Celie that Celie has never had an orgasm because she's always felt like she's just there for the male's pleasure and thus she's still a virgin. And there's a lot of that kind of exploration. And then there's also Celie's attraction to Shug, who in the book, I believe, is bisexual. Is that right? Shug's bisexual. Shug's bisexual. Yeah. Yeah. And the two have a really touching, really deep-rooted, long-lasting romantic relationship that uh, expands in the back half of the book. And while the film is preoccupied with um, Mister's dilapidation and eventual redemption i suppose you could call it the book invests that time instead with the romantic relationship between um Seely and shug and to make to make a film in 1986 1985 sorry about black womanhood i can imagine in itself is a monumental undertaking so to ask for the queerness to be intact as well is probably asking too much but at the same time to me the queerness is an intrinsic part of of this book and to take that out I, I just I it feels like again not to be dramatic but it just feels like a betrayal of what Alice Walker's intentions were and what she poured of herself into the book you know yeah um yeah I I, I it's a weird one because I don't disagree with any of that but I don't <laughs> I, I still like the film <laughs> yeah. yeah I know I mean it's it, weird. it is as it's a weird, film like... if I'd have seen it yeah if I'd have seen it as a film without having read it, I think I would have liked it more. But just knowing the gay thing, whole bit, yeah. Sorry, Andy, do go on. No, no, I was like literally going to say it. it's kind of. I don't know how much of it also then comes down to having already seen it. Whether there was just kind of that le- level of um, slight expectation to know. Like even when I was reading the book, I was just kind of like, I don't remember that being there, and <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. kind of like relationship where. I, I'm just picturing someone being assigned the colour purple as like kind of um, school classwork as a novel to read and then choosing to watch the film instead and then suddenly a conversation yeah. coming up about <laughs> yeah. the, uh, <laughs> the the kind of um, themes of sexuality and, um, and uh, sexual awakening and then just kind of being a bit left in the dark because that is aside from a scene where they share a kiss it's very much not kind of it's not really played to at all it's played to a more kind of sisterly love as i think is yeah. kind of spielberg's intention from the off by having a kind of a, a focus in the opening on the relationship between Nettie and Celie and that that kind of um tearing apart of those two when Nettie has um ends up having to leave after um uh refusing mister's advances on her yeah um yeah which is a scene in this that i think it it plays a, a very high key of emotion when nettie's leaving that's that, like that's generally played for a really um distressing and um uh high, highly emotional moment and it, it's probably the film 
where I felt the film was its most kind of gets closest to the like we've we've said the kind of rawness of the book by having this like really devastating moment of these two young sisters being yeah torn apart um but yes i think my my main concern with the kind of when we're talking more on a changes from the novel to the film are where yours lie as well with the kind of relationship between silly and shug but also the kind of characterization of shug because there's quite a yes significant addition to the film there's a part of the film that's not in the book at all concerning kind of shug's development as a character and that is with her relationship with her estranged father who is the preacher in in town at the at the church um this is something that is kind of it's not in the book at all and it it's the element that most disappoints me because as kind of Walker expressed herself when she talked about a lot of what was different in the screenplay that she wrote, where she says she, when she says that she kept Shug completely unapologetic as a self acceptance outlaw, the film refuses her that and has to tie her narrative to the idea of having to appeal to the expectations of a father figure. And that to me yeah. is the most kind of damaging element to on, on a broader sense, because it just does not need to be there really at all. But I guess it's the kind of compensate for the fact that they're taking a, such a large component away from the yeah. Shug character and having this more explicitly, um, sexual and romantic relationship between her and Salih and replacing it instead. I just don't understand what the kind of thought process was to replace it with a storyline where she is fundamentally kind of um, contradicting the makeup of the character. It just felt weird to me. It, it feels like one of the, I mean, there's, there's, I think this is a tendency that's more pronounced in, in a film that we're going to look at in, in a few episodes time always but I think there's a lot of examples in this film of Spielberg, the kind of thing that Spielberg's detractors accuse him of, that horrible, saccharine, um, artificial sentimentality that kind of like the flip side to what he goes for in E.T. It's kind of unearned emotional high points. And I agree. I felt it in the chapel scene. I think it was quite a, a cheap shot. Yeah. And to be honest with you, man, I felt it at the end. I think the, by the time you get to the end of the book, you ha- you have a thing in the book that... Obviously, a, a book is a book. You've got so much more expansive space, so you can't hold it against the film for, for cutting down the netty correspondence aspect. But there is so much more time to, to build up a sense of desperation. And there's a crucial part in the book where you believe that Nettie has boarded a ship. Uh, boarded a ship? Is that the correct? Yeah, boarded a ship that has... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that has, <laughs> yeah uh, that's been sunk by a German bomber because we're now in the start of the Second World War. And for a long time, you think that, that Nettie is dead and, and all of her letters that Celia receives subsequently are tinged with this ethereal quality, like a death march quality. So when you do see them on the horizon at the end of the book, it's such a vivid, unexpected burst of joy tinged with the melancholy of all the lost time they've had together. And you're acutely aware of the fact that it's been, by that point, 30, 40 years since they've 
I keep saying acutely, but I need to think of a new <laughs> a new word to describe mm-hmm. the, I, the feeling. Um, I just find out the but, podcast experience, you realise yeah. how many words that you call upon. <laughs> <laughs> this week's word is acute. Um, but it, it just it packs such a punch because you have that that excuse. And in this film, it's it's tinged, it's twinned with the quote unquote redemption of Mister, which I think I I think again I think that's a cheap shot, and I think that it kind of undercuts the emotion. And I don't think you need the fake out of her death. I, I don't. I think you're fine to lose that completely. But I there is just something about the way it plays in the film. It kind of almost feels like a reverse engineered. Spielberg moment in in the, the the sort of the most egregious way, much like the chapel scene. You know, uh, did, did did the ending work yeah. for you? It it works for me on the broader sense of like because I think the time committed to the relationship of, between the two sisters at the start and the kind of mm. um, genuinely distressing emotion in the scene where they part, I think, and then yeah. keeping them apart for so long. Um, it works for me in in terms of just seeing them reunited, um, uh, and dear listeners, um, I may not cry at ET, but I did cry at the color purple. <laughs> well, 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 there we go. There you go. go. There it, we like, because it is just it's very, it's just a that there's still a lot like even though it is, I do think a very sanitized version of a much more emotional and complicated book i still think that there is a lot of that emotion there and that it's in that kind of base um relationship that the rest of Salee's connections kind of build on and that base is netty and i think again you could also still just put it down to like the extra contextual and relationship that we've ended up having with this and just knowing the story um as well as we as I did kind of going into it and being like yeah. around the color purple a lot is would contribute it to it too but that yeah it's just that that there is still a a lot of emotion in that and I have to put it down entirely largely to the work of the actors and throughout the whole thing yeah um, oh, absolutely but to to kind of double back a little bit before going more in directly into the performances the changes with mister i think are also where I'm kind of a little unsure as to why certain changes have been made that they have, and not that I'm to tell anyone how to write an adaptation of The Color Purple because I I don't have a clue how you would <laughs> <laughs> how you would even how you go about it. But you see this shift in there's only the slightest shift in perspective at one point in this film where we have largely been following Salee with, uh, with the uh, odd um, cutting to Nettie in Africa, which is treated in a lot more of a just kind of straightforward montage rather than the kind of in, you get really in depth with Nettie's experience with the Alinka tribe in Africa. That is, again, it's the kind of Cliff Notes version of it. In yeah, a, yeah. What is essentially a montage. Um, and then the, the point where Salee chooses to leave with Shug after she's discovered that Mister has been keeping Nettie's letters and there's a scene around the dinner table where she finally has the strength and she's finally had enough of his kind of hold over that she breaks free and tells him exactly what for. Um, excellent scene. 
the best scene in the whole thing. <laughs> and then I think tied with, with one more, but we'll get into that in a second. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then she leaves with Shug to head to uh, Memphis, and where in the books she and Shug kind of explore their relationship more, and Salee also establishes her own independent business as a um trouser trouser maker like what a tailor she does only make trousers right is she a full tailor Se- <laughs> seamstress yeah is that my she textile sets up a pants uh, shop basically for. doesn't she yeah <laughs> um, she makes pants. and you, you get <laughs> and she you get much more of that growth in the book again again because you have so much more space but it would have been very easy for the film to choose to follow Celine Shug in uh, Memphis and have her kind of discover this what is a practical way to make her own money and also a kind of expression and that you see her sharing these kind of stars of pants with the important the important people in her life the film doesn't show any of that and instead chooses to focus for a, a beat on Mr. and how his kind of house completely kind of falls away into despair following Celie leaving. There's also there's this kind of weird magical realism touch that Spielberg adds that kind of has Celie as this almost it, this kind of cle- cleansing element to whatever... Um, environment she's in as well where as soon as she comes to mrs house for the first time it's suddenly full of life and operating fully and then when she leaves it completely falls into ruin and and dredge that is the that was one of the first glaring signs to me that this was quite different is this kind of even in the cinematography it's Mm. there's this wistful magical realism that spielberg wants to bring into it that yeah again does kind of it does clash with your idea of what the book could be. And going back to Alice Walker's yeah. own worries that it felt to Oklahoma, as she described it. <laughs> now there is, there is the, my favorite scene of the film is, is the one scene in which I think that, that slightly magical realist element is, is used really well. And it's because it taps into the romantic aspect of their relationship that's otherwise missing. And it's when Shug sings Sealy Blues in Harpo's bar. Yeah, and yeah, I like the that crowd, scene a lot too. The crowd kind of parts ways and the two have a clear view of each other and then Shug walks over and sits with Sealy and sings right at her and she's still doing this thing. Whoopi Goldberg, the, the, the use of posture in this film is, is incredible. That's one of the great yeah. aspects of the performances and, and the, the blocking as well. And she's got this thing where she, she covers her mouth when she's happy. She doesn't want to sort of show off her smile. And there are so many little ticks and, and micro um, expressions that Whoopi Goldberg's going through. But you can see the adoration in her eyes and the joy in her eyes yeah. shining through. And he gets back to that line. Um, there's a beautiful line from the book uh, at that point when... I'm trying to find, let me try and find it now because it's a really, it's a really nice one. Um... It is when yeah, so when 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 Shug writes a song for Seely, Seely says it's the first time somebody's made something and named it after me, and it's just this idea that she didn't previously believe she was worthy of love, and this is the first time she's seen someone looking at her uh, in a way that she's never been looked at before, and she's never, you know, apparently thought she was allowed to be looked at before, um, and I think this is the, the, that that that's kind of when Spielberg's sensibilities and Walker's sensibilities 
overlap the best and it, and it results in these these beautiful moments and, and even the lyrics to the song i'm something i hope you think you're something too um I, that's i did I'm, yeah i did cry at this film several times don't get me wrong that's one of the times <laughs> that i cried in this film i just thought it was a, a beautifully yeah. done moment um yeah yeah th- there was only one thing that slightly undercut that for me it was like the fact that the kind of the main sentiment of the song is kind of sisters and that kind of felt like it played a bit more into the kind of watering down of the actual I relationship suppose, itself for me i but, suppose yeah yeah i did there was just something in in in, in goldberg's eyes that kind of because you, you do yeah the, this is this is the thing about her performance i do agree with you there so her eyes she's completely playing it like she is deeply madly insatiably yeah, in love yeah. with uh margaret avery Gabriel. she's completely playing it like that yeah yeah um and it does make for i think this the scene afterwards is quite well done as well even though ultimately it sort of taps out on a much more chaste note um when she's dressing when sugar's dressing up celie and they're talking on the bed and she tells her she's beautiful and they sort of briefly talk about Celia's sex life and then, you know, they, they have a little kiss and then that's that's kind of, that's almost like Spielberg saying, okay, right, I've done that. that that's kind of as close yeah. as I'm going to get to that. And then... It does the kind of on. classic pan away to a to a lantern in the corner sort <laughs> yeah. of approach that it's, yeah. when the film is like, all right, yeah. nothing to see here, which is, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a shame that that kind of, it, that, it's so hard to escape from it that that it those clear moments where you can see it kind of deviate from the yeah uh, yeah yeah braver bolder truer elements of the novel do it it's hard to reconcile that because you do feel the rattle you feel the rattle of that deviation you do it's, yeah it's you weird. do you do and I think especially because we absorbed so much color purple material in such a short space of time in preparation for this maybe. We, you know, you feel it more. <laughs> maybe you feel it more acutely if you do if you do it like that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there's there's definitely you, you do feel it. You do get a bit of a whiplash yeah. sense there. There, like, kind of going off on um, the moments of that you mentioned the kind of performance of Shug's song, and we've touched on the uh, a scene in we're involving a church choir where the Duke joint. And the church choir end up kind of clashing over the same song and then join up together to sing it. There's this film has a kind of like rich mix of music that kind of um largely like composed by Quincy Jones, uh with a little help from Lionel Richie as well, I believe. So that's did not clock that. Um But there's this um the the music is kind of like a melting pot of a lot of different styles of music. You kind of have a bluesy jazz riffs in here, and also something more akin to a Spielberg. Uh, your idea of what a Spielberg movie's mm. score would sound like, even if it's not coming from John Williams. And I I felt that this weird tension with the music because there's moments where you feel like it's kind of playing, uh quite authentically to the time and setting and then there are other times where it feels a bit too broadly comic particularly and mm. uh, and there are moments in this where there's clearly been some like attempts at humor added the main one bit and it's it's what something that um alice walker brings up as well as something she was a bit baffled by 
as to why the character of Harpo for a long time the first <laughs> the first few times he's introduced he just keeps falling through ceilings he's, he's, and, uh, he's, he's, yeah uh, accompanied by kind of yeah it's made into an ass it's 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 insane yeah, he's forced through the roof when he's fixing Sophia's house, the like the what eventually becomes Harpo's bar. Um, then even a, a thing that particularly annoyed me is in the book one of the early powerful bits is when um, Celie's relationship with Sophia initially is kind of one born of jealousy. So Harpo's talking about how he can't control uh, Sophia, and Celie advises him to beat her. And that's kind of born of her complicated feelings towards her because she admires her for being so, you know, well self-possessed, but she also kind of resents the pity that she lays on her. And there's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, obviously, she doesn't take to being beaten. She won't be cowed by it, so she fights back. And then she confronts Celie about it. And then there's, there's that great uh, All My Life I Had to Fight bit, which in the book yeah. I think is really, it's got a real sledgehammer effectiveness. But in the film, it's inexplicably intercut between um, that, her talking to Celie, and Harpo sort of telling his dad that the bruises on his face are from a mule that kicked him, which is also in the book, but it's not intercut like that. And the Harpo part of that scene is played for laughs, and it's even got the jokey score as well. And then you've got this really sort of, uh, you know, heart-on-sleeve confession from Sophia that kind of underpins her character about how she's been fighting all her life and she will not fight in her own home, which makes her ultimate fate so much more tragic because she ultimately is beaten down before she finds herself again. And yeah, and, and, and for the comic beat to inter interrupt on a scene that is so... A, a speech that is so powerful and character-developing like that really, uh, like, really um, just was, was baffling. It was very baffling and it was uh, atonal and... Yeah, bristled quite a bit. There are a couple moments where they try to bring humour in into it in a slightly more, um, I guess, kind of less organic way, and similar to how we've just described there, where they do just kind of like they, they make you screw your face up a bit, like you're sucking on a sour lemon. You're just like, oh, I that <laughs> like the bloody the after the beautiful song in in Harpo's. Harpo's place uh, when when Sophia and Squeak, who is Harpo's new girlfriend, face off and and Sophia punches Squeak in the face and in the oh, book she makes God, a tooth yeah. fall out. Whereas in the film she's a it, comment, she flings across the floor, falls down a trap door, and then a bloody that rhymed. I didn't even mean for you. The bloody the patrons <laughs> it's around them. It's a whole them. brawl. It's a whole yeah. brawl, isn't it? And it's got I that wacky. That was mad. Yeah, I it's insane. <laughs> you think like you know, in, in in the book it's kinda played for a laugh as well, but at the same time it's grounded in something quite gruesome and you know, and there's a brutality to it. And just I understand Spielberg's need to he's very good at like we've said in the past, he's very good at leavening uh enlightening moments with sort of effortless character based humour, but he's really bad at gags. <laughs> Why has he put so many gags yeah. in this film? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 odd. It's odd. Mm-hmm. Slightly, slightly, just going back to what you mentioned about the scene where where Shug takes the performers to the chapel and they have a kind of the, the two warring musical aspects come together in one holy matrimony. The 
I, I, I feel like Spielberg gave that moment of reconciliation to Shug, partly to compensate, like you say, for the otherwise lacking aspects of her character in the film, and partly as a kind of shorthand to convey Shug's spirituality. Because in, in the book, um, I, I kind of read that whole bit when, when Shug is explaining to Celie about how she views God and what God is to her. And yeah. That kind of, to me, is the linchpin. I mean, that, that whole bit is where the book gets its title from. And yes, there is a part in the film, there is a line that, that talks about the colour purple being an, an expression of God in some way. But it doesn't really, it's not rooted in, in anything that makes it as clear as it is in the book. And I know this is a problem that Walker has herself with the film. The, the whole thing about, Suge's whole thing, the way Suge helps uh, Celie find God in the way that she sees God is it, she sort of dismantles the idea of God as being this, this, this great hulking white man in the sky. She sees that as sort of the white man's God. That, that's not something personal to you. That, that's something that kind of, um, that's, that's all maybe imposed upon you. It's a perpetuated it's like, idea. Yeah, of exactly. What the, the religious exactly. figure should, should and it, be. And it's, you know, in its own way, it's another, another form of oppression. So to Shug, religion uh, is some God is not something you find in church. God is something you take in church with you, and instead, God is kind of God's all around you. God is everyone. God is nature. God is is you know God's the color purple, and 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 you know as much as people feel like they should please God, God also wants to please you. You know, look, look how beautiful these things are in the world, and the idea is that the color purple is a rarity in nature. So when you see it, it's a beautiful thing, a beautiful rare expression of, of you know of god and, and which is another thing about the film's visual aspect the purple's everywhere you know just that purple's that. everywhere <laughs> <laughs> so this is a long-winded way of me saying that i do feel that to a point the scene of, of shug in, in the chapel with her dad taking taking her expression of creativity and lust for life into the church is kind of a visual shorthand for that spirituality that that Walker is talking about in the book via Shug. Mm. Does that kind of make sense? I don't know if it quite tracks because so much of Shug's version of religion hinges on her unapologetic nature and by the film walking that back, it kind of undermines what yeah, that means. Yeah, and particularly but... to kind of tie tie in her character in the film so much of this reconciliation that she desires with her father who is a preacher and a man of God. It's really out of whack. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Um, that is my yeah that yeah you've really touched upon what is my kind of biggest issue with the film, namely the character of Shug, which is a shame because Margaret Avery is great. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's got such dynamism as the character, and you can totally see why Celie falls in love with her. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but, but yeah, like, and still, I I do like I know I feel I still feel like I'm slightly. The the only reason I can't like completely throw this film away is because I. One, it is still detailing an experience that just hadn't, at that time, hadn't really been portrayed on screen. And, like, you cannot um, undervalue the importance of that. Um, But also just because of how good everyone is in it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've talked a lot, like, like you've really touched on why I love Whoopi Goldberg in this so much. And it is that uh, the ticks she brings and even the kind of posture she brings to a younger Celie to when she's playing her older she's like incredibly convincing at like shifting her body language for a sh- shifting age and her, her eyes towards Shug Avery I you know like 
they may have said to Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg that they weren't going to really include that relationship. You just know that she's going, well, I'm still going to play it. Like yeah, I'm yeah. Deeply, deeply in love with this woman. <laughs> it's like the way that Oscar Isaac looks at John Boyega in the Star Wars movie. Oh, I, 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 I played that as, uh, as, as a loving relationship, as a romantic relationship. <laughs> and uh, so I think Whoopi Goldberg's performance is probably the crown of it for me as it rightly should be because it is the, the centerpiece of the whole thing um oprah is e- equally as impressive i think like you say she has that moment in the field where she never has to where she's like kind of telling Celie that she'd never had to fight in her own home big moments like that she's very good at i think the film does hurts a slight disservice by particularly when she comes out of uh because uh, after an altercation with uh, the white mayor and his wife, she ends up uh, going to prison and then being forced to be the maid for said mayor's wife and is kept away from her family for years. Um, her, the aging, her, the aging of her character, yes, it's kind of accentuated to kind of express the amount of uh, trauma, like trauma and distress she's gone through, but it's slightly done too far in a way that feels slightly, again, to quote Pauline Kael's opinion of the film, this feels slightly phony. You don't quite buy Oprah Winfrey in old makeup, but she is still very good in, again, what is a pivotal role. Um, do, what what did you think of the debut debut of big screen Winfrey? <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't, I, I haven't seen her in, uh, in, in much. I'm, I'm racking my brains trying to think of what else I will have seen her in, so I'm not used I've seen to her, her in... as a... Selma and A Wrinkle in Time are the only other two that I can think off the top of my head that I've seen her in. Uh, no, I thought she was great. I realised, and you are right. I think the the, the sort of the, the lengths that it goes to with the old age makeup takes it too far in one direction, and then the kind of sudden change in her character at the dinner table as soon as um, as soon as Celie stands up to Mister for the first time. It's a very satisfying moment, but it's such it a is. radical. Like radical yeah. awakening. Is that, and, oh, okay. back to how, how yeah, it was yeah. To... <laughs> All better now. <laughs> but I do think I think you know she she brings a real heft to the role. And again, the posture of it. There's that scene when she first walks in to meet Mister, and Mister's very dismissive of her. But in that scene, you have this well-held, you know, straight-backed powerhouse that is Oprah Winfrey, compared to the sort of the meek, diminutive figure yeah, of, yeah. Uh, of Whoopi Goldberg and. The, the, like, visually with the performances and, and, and the way the characters are positioned um, relative to each other on screen is a really good way of, of getting across some of those deeper character aspects and yeah I think she's great, I think they're both great I think they're, I think they're all great, you're right mm. and to go back to that dinner table scene where Celie kind of finally um, makes her feelings known to Mr. and declares she's leaving with Shug there, there's two performances in that which are really key for me one is of course Whoopi Goldberg's Celine and while you do have kind of Sophia's tramp like coming back out of her shell again her herself being inspired by Celine's display of uh, strength um, you then have Danny Glover as Mr and this, this is a scene that kind of really encapsulates what I like a lot about his performance and particularly in the way the way in general that the film kind of views Mr. Um, 
in a way, I guess that makes it slightly more sympathetic than the book, even if um, the film doesn't have quite the same level of reconciliation that the book ends up having. Because uh, Danny Glover plays Mister as uh, a man who's uh, kind of trying very hard to hit a certain model of manliness that he has been kind of told to uphold by this the presence of his own father, played by Aldolf Aldolf Caesar uh, in the film, who's always kind of there goading him to kind of behave a certain way. And um, particularly in this dinner table scene, I felt like um, Danny Glover chooses that moment to not have it as this kind of display of Mr. trying to dominate Salih. He chooses, I feel like there's something in him that's choosing to portray it as Mr. performing to his father rather than actually kind of having a lot of um, conviction in it, in what he's saying. Uh, mm-hmm. What it yeah. really boils down to is like he he's someone who I think like who is also deeply in love with Shug does not appreciate appreciate Sali and is the film tries to frame him more as a victim of the kind of patriarchal norms that have been placed down before him by his father and likely his grandfather and what have you and the 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 film does I. It's a weird one for me in terms of that performance because I think that performance has a lot of sympathy and then the film doesn't quite... I feel like the ending of the novel for Albert, uh, Misto's first name is Albert, is in a way actually kinder to what the film ends up giving him because it yeah. the book manages yeah. to have this expression of this kind of passing of time allowing kind of Albert to realise his attitudes aren't are, uh, are are not something that he should be upholding and something that kind of comes with him over time and having things taken away from him and realising uh, not only Salih's value but the kind of value of uh, the woman in his life. And the film just doesn't really... has kind of no interest in offering him that and instead has it as this kind of unspoken... Um, I'm trying to think the right word for it, where he kind of, I guess, unspoken redemption for himself, where he's the one who yeah. kind of manages to bring Nettie home, which just doesn't quite chime in with the, again, with the with the book. But And I, I'd also argue it doesn't chime in with the kind of performance that Danny Glover is giving that does feel like it's building upon this man who's pushing values that have been pushed down on him. Yeah. It, I, I agree. I, I think I would, it, it doesn't earn his final note in the film and it just it has a there's a superficiality to it as a gesture that ultimately just doesn't really mean anything whereas not 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 to keep going back to the book but it's such a I know nice it's hard though in. right <laughs> it, well it, it is it is purely because so many of these things are so baked into the cake and it's weird to eat the cake without them in um the, the later life relationship that celia and mr have when they're equals they're societal equals now she's you know, self-actualized for the most part, and you know, homeowner, business with... owner. Yeah, yeah, and she's come to terms with with who she is and where she's at in her life. And he's a man who's really done a reckoning with himself, and has kind of, kind of the the, the model of how to learn. He's not denying anything that he's done in the past. He's accepting that he used to behave like that, but he is understanding why that's not okay and, and what that's done to people. And 
there's a real frankness to that conversation that even if Celia doesn't forgive him, he doesn't he knows he doesn't necessarily deserve it. He doesn't even want that. He just wants to kind of he wants them to be good to get he wants to be good to her now, you know, in the in the in the in the book's present. And that is such a more, you know, long lasting and impactful thing than what the film gives you at the end, which just has a hollowness to it, I think. I don't know. It just if it, it I don't know, I keep using this expression, but it feels quite reverse engineered to milk those mm. tear ducts in a very Spielbergian way. Yeah, and it, it's weird to me because the film does sometimes feel like it is still going to go down that route of kind of having mm. them have this moment of reconciliation and building a relationship that feels more built on respect, mutual respect for each well, just respect on his side full stop. Um, and I, I do think it's a shame, particularly, uh, and I think Danny Glover's performance um, is walks such a fine line of not kind of completely submitting um, the character of Mister to being this symbol of um, aggression and violence. He does try and do something, and it is there to completely involve himself with in Walker's novel and there are elements of it in the script that this is a man who's under the pressure of what he has been taught is supposed to be the the way things are done yeah when that is clearly clearly just clearly not something that is respectful of the the lives around him so a lot of this that we've kind of been going back and forth is this kind of relationship between the adaptation, the adaptation with the book itself, with what's lost from characters and what kind of like the actors bring in to kind of allow the, for me anyway, that the, allowed the kind of weight of some of that loss to kind of be um, balmed in a way by having actors portray these characters in a way that is clear uh, in a way where they are clearly so invested in who who they're playing and the, the material itself so i i guess the kind of thing i'm building up to to kind of bring this to a close is that um as a spielberg film do you think this is like and i, I know you've kind of set it up top with, with your kind of thoughts on the film do you just feel this is a kind of like complete completely a mismatch or do you think there is something there that kind of allows it to not only work in and of itself but also kind of work as a steven spielberg film i think there's a couple i think two two or three moments where i really felt that this the source uh, and the filmmaker gelled perfectly the, the dinner scene i think was fantastic the scene when sugar is singing to her is fantastic there's uh, a few more moments you know like those i think they really are moving in the same grooves but i just i think and this may be unrealistic given the time and it's you know again remarkable that well, remarkable it's good and, and necessary that this kind of story was seen when it was seen but i i, I just don't think that this is the story to have the edges sand, the edges sanded off and i think to give it that kind of spielbergian pg-13 treatment i just i I can't get past that being a bit of a betrayal of what the book does. So I think that no, I don't. I don't think it's a good Spielberg film, and I don't think it's a good adaptation of the um, of the book. I just, I mm-hmm. just don't think he. I fundamentally don't think his sensibilities chime with with what. And 
his sensibilities don't chime with it, and I just think his temperament. I don't. He's by his own admission in the quote that I read earlier. He is a little bit too. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not chaste, but <laughs> uh, he is a little <laughs> bit too shy. Is is a little bit too. Um, yeah. It's a better a bit word. Too though. much a... skepticism. <laughs> Skeptical. Would you say? Uh, perhaps sure I just don't think right he. Word. No, it's like he blushes too easily. He's a little bit too. Ooh, not hmm. proper either. I don't know. I just don't think he has the temperament to properly to 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 give credence to the the the, the really powerful ideas in the book. And um, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It it, it it's tough because I am especially having heard you talk about how much it meant to the people who needed to see it at the time to see it. I think that's great. But as an adaptation of yeah. this book, I did I just think it's a failure. Fair enough. Uh for for me I it kind of it comes down to I think this is exactly Steven Spielberg's version of the colour purple. And in mm-hmm. that it's a success, I guess in a way, because it, it, it does <laughs> it doesn't really take you by surprise that particularly for the Spielberg of this time doing it yeah um at a time where he's trying to get himself taken a bit more seriously and a lot of the critics at the time were also saying that he just kind of rather kind of i guess kind of more pessimistic if you to think more pessimistically about it he only really took it on in the hope of getting an oscar um which i i I do think is a pessimistic way to look at um why he did the film i personally Probably more for my uh, my own selfish reasons to keep Spielberg as uh, the the uh, figure and icon in my mind untarnished. But for for me, the the feeling I get from him is to act as uh, to do what he can to kind of bring this story to a larger level, and he tries to find his ways to get into the material that I don't think always proves successful. And it, and it, and it's all very clearly there where he's either chosen to go another route or chosen to cut a corner or chosen to omit certain things which um, may make him feel more comfortable with what he's working with, but as a whole doesn't serve the story, which I think is ultimately the problem here. But what I think you're more seeing is someone who clearly, when they were first asked, had an apprehension to do this and hasn't completely um removed that apprehension from his um approach um and it shows yeah but also saying that i do like it (laughs) (laughs) it does it it does get me and i like and i do think that is as i've said many many times on this podcast on this episode of the podcast and i'll say it i'll just say it one more time just for good measure it is Largely down to performances and largely down to Whoopi Goldberg's in particular. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I don't really disagree with what you've said. I just, yeah, fall on a slightly different part of the scale. <laughs> <laughs> I think that kind of brings us up to the end of yeah. this discussion on the color purple. It's been it's been an incredible ride, kind of looking into into this. Uh, yeah, because it's, it's always one of those books that I've always wanted to read and kind of having this moment to discuss it um it 
it it's felt it's felt um it, it's felt like a very worthwhile experience as it as it is just kind of looking into alice walker's like being introduced mm. to alice walker's writing full stop I, I i really appreciated this what having the this episode to talk about it has it, yeah it's led uh, led me on quite a, a a very satisfying path of literature mm-hmm. consuming as well as well as <laughs> uh podcast preparation <laughs> yes yeah so i think we can wholeheartedly endorse reading the novel um so do that you know the bookstores are open it. again now <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean they, if, if you've are. got a now tv subscription give it a watch but bookstores are open again now so head down to your local independent retailer and grab the color purple <laughs> it's a, a, a marvelous read and if you have read it and watched the film i <laughs> i would pick up the same river twice whilst you're at it <laughs> <laughs> for a bit more and if you're recommending things yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was gonna say, um, if you're going to recommend things um, if you want to know more about Quincy Jones there's a fantastic documentary on Netflix called Quincy made I, by yeah. his daughter Rafida Jones which is very worthwhile very true. as well yeah so a lot of, uh, a lot of reading and viewing recommendations for you from, <laughs> from this one um, I, I guess the kind of fi- final I want to say is that uh, this is not going to be the last time that we're going to talk about the colour purple on this podcast because um, there is currently a new version of uh, The Colour Purple in development at Amblin Entertainment. Um, and that is going to be an adaptation of the 2005 Tony-winning Broadway musical of uh, The Colour Purple. Not one I've listened to or had uh, um, much connection with, so I'm not too sure. I, I know it's a much celebrated musical, but I'm not too sure on the music itself. But um, by all accounts, it's, it's excellent. And the 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 adaptation is like I say in development at Amblin, um, with Spielberg, Quincy and Quincy Jones returning to produce it alongside Scott Sanders and Oprah Winfrey, with uh, Alice Walker herself in an exec producing capacity. Um, that is going to be directed by Blitz Baza Wooley, who recently directed um segments of Beyonce's Black Is King. I don't know if you watched that at all. But it's no, awesome. I didn't get around to watching it. No, I need it's it's it. I came around. We talked about it at length. But it's I, a better really, Lion King remake. Yeah, I had a real Beyonce awakening. You know when Homecoming came out, that, yeah. that just completely, uh, you know, that I was like finding God seeing that movie. So I very much <laughs> found Beyonce. So yeah, I need to watch Black is King. I need to get off. No, my yeah, yeah. Like, that even just visually, it's like eye poppingly like it. It's yeah. mad some of the stuff they do across it. Um, so I'm oh, very cool. excited to see um, what he does with uh, bringing this story back to the screen, albeit as a musical this time. And that's aiming for a Christmas 2023 release. So um, we've still got a lot of films to get through. So who knows if we're, <laughs> we'll even be finished getting through those by the time we get to its release but, we can uh, do the maths we'll, and try and work it out but uh, i don't yeah. think we'll be <laughs> we'll be in our 30s when that comes out which makes me uncomfortable <laughs> oh get out of here leave <laughs> i'll be turning 30 when the color purple <laughs> <musical> comes out. 
<laughs> that's another existential crisis for another time. <laughs> I thought we're all holding off on on we're all sort of rolling the calendar back a year for our next birthdays because of yeah, the whole hope so. pandemic situation. I mean, so I turned twenty eight at the uh, end of this week at the time of recording. So uh, aging is on my mind this week. <laughs> so that's why I brought it up. I feel <laughs> the inexorable toll of the human mortal coil to mix metaphors. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> um, we may so while we may be aging, that does mean that we will have more rambling and ambling podcast episodes to produce and bring to you, good people. Um, so, so uh, for our next episode, uh, we will be looking at the first of many Tom Hanks ambling movies. Um, it's about time he showed his mug around these parts. <laughs> yeah, Andy's very Andy's been dusting off his Tom Hanks impression, no doubt. I don't. I don't have a Tom Hanks impression. Oh, you don't, must have. Don't a Tom tease Hanks people impression. with such a with, with such a thing that I just cannot deliver. <laughs> so... I, right. I I know you well, and I don't believe you. I think you've got one. Okay. Even if you don't know you've got one, I think you've. you've we'll got see what one. happens. We'll see what happens. But um, <laughs> the film in our next episode, in our next episode, we'll be focusing on Richard Benjamin's 1986 film, The Money Pit. Which does indeed mean we're finally out of 1985. <laughs> Woo! Wow. We've been in 1985 for a fair while now, so we're moving into the future, the bright, bright future of 1986. <laughs> <laughs> that will be for a while as well. Yeah. <laughs> Um, if you would like to watch The Money Pit along with us ahead of the episode and don't happen to have it on disc, then don't you worry. It is available to those of you that have a Prime Video subscription, or otherwise you can rent or buy the film digitally from Amazon, Chile, Google Play, Sky Store, and YouTube, or you can just buy it digitally from Microsoft Store as well, so plenty of places where you can find The Money Pit. Check out my money pit. Um, yeah, if you've <laughs> if you've seen the money pit, sorry, if you've seen the money pit and want to share your thoughts on it, uh, please do at us at Ramblin Amblin, or shoot us an email at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail dot com. I said that fast, so I'll say it again: ramblinaboutamblin <laughs> at gmail dot com. Uh, if you're listening to us via uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever, a place that you can leave reviews, then do give us a little review, give us a like, give us a subscribe, you know, give us a Five star rating, um, nothing less. You know, we don't want anything less. No, that'll do. Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, um, thank you all for joining us for this discussion on the color purple. Um, a fascinating subject to dive into, no matter what you may think of the film. Uh, we, we hope you all enjoyed yourselves. Um, Joshua, it's always a pleasure to dive into these merry escapades with you. Likewise, my man. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you back next time for our episode on the Money Pit. Until then, we all hope you take care and we'll see you next time. <laughs>